This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Appreciate you tuning in. We begin today in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. It says, As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do so that I may inherit an eternal life? But Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So there's more to that conversation, obviously, but those first exchanges are incredibly valuable. And the second part in verse 18 is what I want to discuss for just a moment. You know, Jesus immediately answers the rich man by saying, Why do you call me good? And then Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know, there's a lot of unscriptural things that have been done in the name of saying, well, it's it's good. It's a good work or good this or good that. And good is a word that we throw around a lot. You know, we talk about people being good people or he's a good guy. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is challenging the rich man's conception of what is good here. What is it? What is a good thing? And what Jesus is doing is not denying that he's good, but rather he knew that the rich young man, like so many of us failed to appreciate the gravity of the word. And so basically he's saying, have you, have you checked how that word is used in scripture? Um, you know, by what standard are you saying I am good? And it should be unsettling to us that the Son of God cautioned the rich man not to throw that word around. He says, God alone, God alone is good. In other words, God alone defines what is good. He is essentially good. He is the author of good. Um, he alone can be said to be absolutely good. And Scripture uses this word a lot. You know, we know of the good soil in the parable of the sower in Luke 8 and the good tree that Jesus speaks of that bears good fruit in Matthew 7. And that, you know, is referring to the character of those things and something that is useful, something that's honorable. Um, you know, in the beginning, Genesis 2, God said it's not good that man should live alone. And, you know, that's not referring to immorality, right? God wasn't saying it's immoral for Adam to live alone, but rather it was about the the fitness of man's station here in, in the world, that it wasn't fit for him to be alone. It would be better, more fitting for him to have a help meet. And so <clears throat> it's used in, excuse me, it's used in different ways throughout scripture. Everything created by God is good. First Timothy 4 in verse 4, and should be received with, with thanksgiving. Um, but that doesn't mean absolutely everything. that You know, that we have to, you know, keep things in their place. So, you know, all things are, are good, including alcohol. You know, it's a good antiseptic, but it's not a good beverage, right? Uh, and so that's what I mean that, we have to keep all things in, the, in their place. Everything created by God is good, provided that we use it in his way, in, in lawful ways. And then there is what I think Jesus is discussing here with the rich man, the absolute good. 
which is usually accompanied by the article the in Greek. And so that's what's that is what's referring to as you know we might call the absolute good or or you know the the ultimate standard of good what's pleasing to God and therefore beneficial. For example, uh, Romans twelve <clears throat> in verse two, which says, "Do not be conformed to this world or to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind." so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then again in verse 9, if you drop down, love must be free of hypocrisy, detest what is evil, cling to what is good. And then finally verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so it's actually what Paul is saying is overcome evil with the good, Prove what is the good, right? Cling to the good. So it's an appeal to the the absolute standard that we should all be concerned with. So it's not just, you know, what your your idea of good is and, you know, what makes you feel good, but the the good, the absolute. So for a thing to be good then to in the absolute sense, for me as a Christian, that can only be true if and only if it has God's approval. And so something is a good work for me and for the local church or for anybody <clears throat> if the thing, whatever thing is under consideration, has divine authority. In other words, I have to be able to point to it in Scripture and say, you know, here's the book, chapter, and verse that tells me what I'm about to think or say or do is defined by God as good. So as a Christian, if I understand that I am a servant of God, I've been bought with a price, and Jesus has all authority, he is the head of the church, and all must be subject to him, That all, all of that means in passages like those texts that I'm re- referring to, Colossians 1.18, 1 Corinthians 6.19, all that's saying is nobody has the right and no church has the right to legislate what good works it should be engaged in. God has already decided what I should be doing. He's already decided from all eternity what is what is good. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Right? Again, which God prepared beforehand for us to do. So we are God's workmanship. We're created for good works, but he has already decided long before we were created in Christ what good works we were going to be doing or we or that we should be doing. And so all we or anyone have the authority to do is the good that God has shown us to do. And so I may think a thing is good, and in, in my wisdom that it's going to be helpful or beneficial or it's expedient in some way. But again, if I can't find book, chapter, and verse for it, then I'm being presumptuous in my definition of good. And I'm I'm speaking where God has been silent. And so my good work, no matter how good and loving it may be in my eyes, if it is unauthorized, 
well, then that good work is actually empty and evil as far as God's concerned. And so I, I have to learn what this means. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Do you remember the original context in which that was said? That's what Samuel told to Saul when Saul was to utterly destroy Israel's enemies and Samuel goes to find him and he hasn't destroyed everything. He spared the king. He spared the best of the animals that he was supposed to slaughter. And Saul's reasoning is, well, we've saved the best for the Lord and we're going to sacrifice these things. The problem is, as well-intentioned as Saul may have been, we know that wasn't the case. He was actually just scared. But even so, had he, just, you know, had it been a legit, sincere desire to sacrifice those animals to the Lord, the fact is, that's not what God said to do. He said, "Kill everything." And so, to obey is better than sacrifice. Better than my best intentions and what I think might be good or what I I think the Lord might want. What matters is what He said. And if I can find that in Scripture and put my finger on it, I can know that it's good. Okay, now I want to discuss something I think that's been on our minds recently as we mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Perhaps, you know, we've been watching various memorial services, you know, this past Saturday, listening to the stories of those families who lost husbands and wives, moms and dads, or, or their children. And, you know, as I was, as I was watching those, I, you know, there was a common theme, obviously of sadness still, even 20 years later, uh, but also anger. Yeah. One woman that I was watching in particular in her address, um, she said, and not her alone, but others say, even though it's been 20 years, it still feels like yesterday. And I'm sure most of us can remember very clearly where we were and what we were doing when we received the news that those terrible things were happening. And maybe we feel that same sadness and anger, not to the degree that, you know, those, those families do, but rightfully so all the sadness and anger we should, we should feel as we remember those tragedies, even though, you know, differently than those who were actually there or witnessed their loved ones die right in front of them on live TV. You know, we wanton violence should bother us, you know, as it did for Lot, as Peter describes that Lot's righteous soul was vexed as he observed the evil day in and day out all, all around him on the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, you know, we, as Christians, as God-fearing people, should be, and I think are just as concerned with threats of violence and political corruption and wrestle with questions of suffering and providence, as did the people of Jesus' day. And uh, I want to take a look at that text wherein we see that in Luke chapter 13, Verses 1 through 5, it says that there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? 
I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And what I want to take from that is these people obviously were concerned about the impact that human governments were having upon men and women throughout history. Rome wasn't perfect. Certainly Pilate wasn't perfect. There's was a lot of corruption in that and idolatry even and suppressing, suppressing of, of God's people, you know, throughout history that you could just fill volumes, you know, they're, they're saying there, here's, here's a wicked ruler. Here's someone who's gay engaged in lawlessness and, you know, he's mixed the blood of these Galileans with their sacrifices. And when we consider godly individuals like Abraham, Lot, Jeremiah, Daniel, or really any faithful example that we can find in Scripture, we're we're talking about people who lived, you know, in the same world that that we do. They lived in ungodly cultures. They were surrounded by uh, sin. But we also discover that the way they coped with that reality was finding hope in the ultimate plans of God. When you look into Hebrews chapter 11, for example, and you see all those men and women of faith who are held up there as examples for us, there's there's a common thread. For example, in verse 10, it says that he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And if you drop down to verse 14, that uh, verses 13 and 14, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And for all the physical blessings that, you know, Abraham is and his family are mainly the ones under consideration in, in those texts. Um, but it, it applies to all faithful people. They, they were ultimately looking beyond this life is the point. They know despite the physical blessings or wealth that they may have had here in the present world, it wasn't to be compared to what they were ultimately looking forward to the heavenly city whose maker and builder is God. They were looking for a heavenly country, a place that they could call their own where there wouldn't be, you know, wicked idolaters and governments and men who suppress God's people and murder God's people or just inflict wanton violence in general and not necessarily uh, directed at, at God's people. And uh, even though I'm sure Abraham and Lot, we, we know, Jeremiah and Daniel were concerned about the things going on around them. Um, they nevertheless clung to their hope and, and, and their faith in God's ultimate plan that he would settle all accounts in the end. And that's really what's happening here in Luke 13 to, you know, Roman officials like Pilate knew how to flex the empire's authority to maximum, maximum effect um, you know, crucifixion was a, a tool to obviously punish people, but also uh, terrorize, you know, um, 
generate fear in the, in the populace. And so the, the troubling political climate of their time and, you know, the evils that they saw inflicted upon their own nation by other nations or other peoples, you know, it weighed on them just as surely as, you know, the issues that, that uh, we observe and experience weigh upon us as, as well. But now comes the implied challenge also in, in the text. Basically, what they're saying is, what is the Messiah going to do to stop all these atrocities, all this violence, and all you know the corruption that we see within human governments? You know, in that time specifically, the, the Roman government. Um, and Jesus offers no hope or promise to overthrow the regime in their time, right? So he doesn't say, yes, Pilate humiliated and brutalized those people and it's unfair and it was terrible. Um, but Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't denounce the Roman government and say, you know, you're going to, you know, don't worry, I'm going to put a stop to it here in a couple of days. He didn't say anything about that or the temple being defiled he didn't say anything about the specific sins the Galileans committed. And, you know, in, in modern times, like he likely wouldn't explain why an Afghan man would fall thousands of feet from a plane to his death or why, you know, jihadists want to fly planes into buildings and kill thousands of people. Right. He, that explanation has already been made known in, in Scripture. The whole world lies in the power of Satan, First John five nineteen, right? We we live in a world that's predominantly made up of his followers, and so you know the right persons in the right places in our government government aren't going to change that ever, right? And for some reason, it seems like many Christians are convinced that that's the solution. Well, we just need to change. Who's in power? We need to change our, you know, our strategy and, and you know, and how we interact with other nations and so on and so. On. And maybe, you know, to some degree, that that's that's true. You know, are having moral people in higher positions of government, you know, going to going to be helpful, of course. But that's beside the point. They're not the ultimate solution to what plagues this world, and that is sin. And, and that's what Jesus is calling us to reflect upon in, in Luke 13. That's why he doesn't address, you know, you know, politics or war in the context or offer any assurance about, you know, that's that that's going to go away or I'm going to handle, you know, he doesn't, you know, doesn't do any of that. Instead, he calls for us to reflect upon what is infinitely more important. And that is what is our standing before God. Right. And so the message essentially is, yes. Pilate killed those Galileans. It was horrible. But think about their souls. Were they worse sinners than everybody else? Were they worse sinners than you? And those listening to Jesus obviously were, were still alive. And the implication is, is that that had nothing to do with their goodness any more than the fate that was suffered by those who were murdered had anything to do with their their sin. It had everything to do with God's mercy. That's why they were alive, the people listening to, to Jesus. And, and Jesus is, he goes on to cite this other tragedy of 
a tower crushing, you know, these, these people. And he says in verse three, you're going to perish also if you don't repent. And so, you know, the suffering that you observe and the tragedies that you see in the world, um, you know, the, the terrible brutalizing of, of innocent people, just as those men and women had observed in Jesus' day, Jesus is saying that should cause you to repent. It should be troubling to you, and it should anger you, and it should make you sad, but it should also cause us to consider our own end because it could just as easily be our name in the headlines. So with each tragic an unfortunate, unpredictable instance of suffering in this life, there's an urgent message from, from God. And that is, repent and be ready. Murder happens. Terrible accidents happen. Suffering is inflicted upon helpless people just going about their daily lives, just, just going to work. And it's okay to be sad about that, and it's okay to be angry and but the best thing that you can do about that is prepare to to meet God which will entail relieving some of that suffering we observe within our immediate sphere of influence whatever we can do to change you know you think about the good samaritan he wasn't going to you know he's not remembered the good samaritan is not remembered because he raised an army and overthrew Rome and all the the oppression and and you know just wiped out all evil people. No, he he's remembered for doing what he could, right? He he saw someone victimized by evil people, and he chose to do what he could do about it. He couldn't fix the world, but he knew that he could relieve somebody's suffering, right? And and he did that because as Jesus says, he understood what it meant to love one's neighbor as oneself. Right. Because that, that whole parable is spurred by the discussion of the greatest commands, loving God first and foremost, and then loving your neighbor as your, as yourself. Right. So as we remember to seek first the kingdom of God and prepare to meet him and know that he's going to ultimately hold all people accountable in, in, in the course of doing that, what it translates to is, is combating evil in this, in this world by overcoming evil with, with good. And so Jesus is saying that, you know, these, these tragedies, the suffering, it's cues. These are cues to think about the life beyond. And in doing that, we are, we're prompted and motivated to, to alleviate suffering, to serve others, you know, whether it's the result of corrupt leadership or suffering is the result of pandemics or suffering is the result of war or happenstance. Such things should cause us to consider our own mortality, seek the Lord, and then serve others. You know, these people were looking for answers. They were, you know, they were asking why this suffering, why this evil, why did it happen to these people in this way? Right. So they were like us. They, you know, we get fixated on how and why people die. And, 
you know, did it have any relation to the kind of people that, that they were? You know, what could they have possibly done to deserve this? And but Jesus, he goes he goes beyond all of that. He doesn't really even address any of, of that. You know, he doesn't just you know, as as a glancing blow, he just says, No, they weren't worse than anybody else. He just honed in on the simple fact that all people die. And after death comes the eternal consequences of your life here. Second Corinthians five ten, you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so every tragic headline is first of all a call for us to repent and also a call for us to do what we can do to relieve suffering in, in the world as we are joint participants in it ourselves. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. It's not a guarantee. And again, it could just as easily be your name in the news. And someday it will. For all the healing and and miraculous things that Jesus did to alleviate suffering, there is a reminder in this text in Luke 13 that that was not the ultimate reason he came to earth. Yes, he did good to many people, and those miracles that he performed were, even though they changed lives and, and healed people, they were ultimately to confirm the message that he brought, and that is that he is the Savior of the world, that he came to remedy our sin, not prolong our days on earth. Because eventually that those all come to an end. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the bodies that we have right now, they can inherit the kingdom of heaven. We have to be changed, and that change begins here and now and is completed once we depart from this world. And so God wills then that we see beyond the here and now. He wants us to humble our hearts in submission to him in submission to Christ before it's too late. So have you done that? He tells you how to do it initially in Mark 16, 16, that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And then right there in the text that we read in Luke 13, Jesus is thrust, the main teaching it there is, unless you repent, you're going to perish. You're going to really even suffer a worse fate than these individuals did. Right, so we again it's a call to believe in him, to seek him, and that should lead us to repentance and and serving him for throughout our days. And you know, don't forget the, the second part of Mark sixteen, sixteen, which says, and be baptized. And that's the message that the apostles taught, Acts two thirty eight. Repent and be baptized, each and every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. So that's where it begins. That's where the change begins. Within within our hearts, and then we submit to God's plan for salvation, and then we look forward to that heavenly home. And however many days we have on this earth, as we're as we're looking forward to to heaven, we spend those days serving others finding opportunities to to relieve suffering, to do good, and to teach others the truth of Christ. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you have a great day.